Welcome to episode 87 of the People's History of Ideas podcast. Last episode, we discussed how Mao Zedong and Zhu De united their forces in the spring of 1928 at the Jingongshan Junction of Forces. And we talked about some of the ways in which Mao and Zhu's different personalities and life experiences were both complementary and created some tensions. This episode, we're going to see the newly united and renamed Fourth Red Army in action. There was only a short period of time available for rest and recuperation following the May 4th celebration of the unification of forces. On the one side, the communists wanted to get back to retaking everything they had lost while Mao had been diverted off to support the South Hunan uprising. And on the other side, the Guomindang was about to launch a new suppression campaign aimed at eradicating the communists from the base area. Already in mid-May, the governor of Jiangxia sent an army division upriver from Jian, where it had been garrisoning that, garrisoning that major city, to attempt to crush the communist base area. This, and the campaigns that followed, all involved much larger forces than what the communists had. So, in the fighting that followed, both in mid-May and in the subsequent campaigns that we're going to discuss here in the Jingongshan, this was when Mao Zedong and Judah first worked out and systematized their thinking on guerrilla warfare. In particular, their famous basic guidelines on how to defeat a larger and more powerful force were worked out at this time. This was the maxim that the enemy advances, we retreat. The enemy camps, we harass. The enemy tires, we attack. The enemy retreats, we pursue. So, the first phase of this campaign involved this very large army marching up the valley that goes from Jian to Yongxin. Now, Jian was this city that was relatively quite large compared to Yongxin, which was a comparatively large market town for this really poor region of China. While Jian was what you might call a regionally or provincially significant city. There was about 100 kilometers between the two places, so they weren't super far apart. But the distance was significant enough that the communists had real hopes of consolidating some power in Yongxin and using it as a kind of economic center for the base area. The thing was, the way in which a reactionary army would try to attack the Jingongshan base area from the Jiangxia side, from the east, uh, would involve this sort of approach where it would march up this valley and Yongxin was kind of the entry point into the communist base region. And so if a large army just marched up this valley, there was no way the communists could win in a direct fight to try and defend their control of Yongxin. That's where the first phase of Mao and Zhu's maxim on guerrilla strategy comes in. The enemy advances, we retreat. This was a principle based on the need for self-preservation. It recognized that a head-on battle to keep territory was a losing proposition. But it was kind of a rough principle to implement. It meant that what you had done in an area that you controlled would then be undone. The land that had been confiscated from landlords would be restored. People who supported the communists and their policies and who couldn't retreat with them would be vulnerable to reprisals. The documentary that I recommended in episode 83, uh, China, A Century of Revolution, 
has some powerful testimony from peasants who lived in communist base areas that the communists had to retreat from and the reprisals that they were subjected to. And I really recommend checking that out and hearing people's testimony from their own mouths. Uh, it's some pretty brutal stuff. Uh, some of it can be hard to listen to, but it will give you an idea of what was involved in this principle of guerrilla warfare of the enemy advances, we retreat. And uh, I'm including the, the link to that video again um, in the show notes. So as we saw last episode, when Mao wrote his letter to the Central Committee on May 2nd from Yongxin, he had high hopes of, as he put it, keeping Yongxin as the center of the base area's economy and administration. But already in mid-May, the communists had to retreat from Yongxin. Now, before we move on to discuss some of the military maneuvers that followed, I can imagine some listeners wondering how to reconcile Mao's desire to hold on to Yongxin with the well-known idea that Maoist military strategy involves surrounding the cities from the countryside. Why was Yongxin important to Mao if it was a major market town? It's a good question and speaks to a way in which the Maoist strategy of surrounding the cities from the countryside expresses an overall strategy, but isn't absolutely the case. The countryside, of course, has an economy and has relatively more and less densely populated areas. It's not uniform. And so if you want to support a guerrilla force, you have to rely on an, an actually existing peasant economy. And even if over time, if communists control a base area long enough, they're going to reshape that economy in important ways, it's still going to have centralized nexuses where goods are traded, where handicraft and manufacturing production is centered, and where various services and administrative functions are centered, which cannot be distributed out into every little hamlet and village. As we discussed last episode, once the communists' forces in the area grew in size with the arrival of Judah's troops, there was a need for the communists to control a larger and more prosperous lowland area in addition to the Jingong Massif itself. And this meant controlling the market towns that served such an important function in the local economy as well. So, in a sense, there are aspects of the city within the countryside. And once the communist forces developed far enough, it was necessary for them to control some of these market towns. Yet, as we are seeing with the quick retreat of the communists from Yongxin in the face of a new offensive from the Guomindang, these places are very difficult to hold on to. This speaks to the inherently unstable nature of communist base areas. Uh, this is a point that Mao would speak to again and again over the years. Even when the communists had held their capital of Yan'an for more than 11 years from late 1935 to early 1947, it would have been easy for them during the civil war with the Guomindang that followed World War II to have felt a need to defend their capital. But even then, when the communists were much, much stronger than they had been in 1928, such positional warfare might have actually led to their defeat in the civil war. So this willingness to cede territory and to recognize the inherent instability of any base area even one that had been relatively stable, was a central element in the strategic thinking of the communists. And it is an easy lesson to forget, 
especially when one looks at a world in which some seemingly perpetual guerrilla struggles have at times held certain territories uh, at times for even longer than the Chinese communists held Yan'an. One of the interesting things about the way in which Maoism was turned into a set of ideas that people tried to learn from in order to make revolution in their own countries outside of China is that many processes that occurred in China were codified in a certain way so that the ideas and experiences from China were kind of packaged so that they could be widely understood and reproduced. Uh, this is a totally understandable thing. It's what always happens when attempts are made to generalize from a particular experience and makes its, and make its lessons transmissible to other people in other contexts. But it also means that something is necessarily lost in the process of codifying the lessons from China. In the process of turning the particular into the general, and that creates major opportunities for misunderstanding what happened in China. There's this very interesting document that the Nepalese Maoists wrote during the first few years of the civil war there, uh, part of a resolution adopted at the fourth expanded meeting of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of Nepal Maoist in August 1998 that speaks to this process of codification of the lessons of the relationship between guerrilla warfare and the establishing of base areas and communist political power in the countryside during a revolutionary civil war. Anyways, I bring this document up because in it, they speak to how they had, for a time, conceptualized guerrilla zones and base areas as potentially achieving a stable and permanent character, contrary to the strategy developed by Mao Zedong and Zhu De at the time that we're considering here in this podcast. And they described this error not just as some mistake that they made in their own thinking, but as representing an ongoing error made by many communists trying to follow in Mao's footsteps. As they put it in this resolution, quote, in the international communist movement, there has been a wrong tendency of assuming guerrilla zone as a strategic and theoretical concept instead of taking it as a tactical and transitional concept, end quote. Anyways, I bring this up mainly to say that this whole experience that we're talking about now and, and very much this issue of how communist guerrillas hold on to territory or don't and whether and when to give up territory in the larger interests of the revolution is a pretty difficult and complicated one uh, in a way that isn't readily apparent for most of us when we first learn about this Maoist military maxim that begins with uh, the enemy advances, we retreat. But um, let's keep things moving forward here in terms of our narrative of the events happening in the Jingongshan. So in mid-May 1928, this Guomindang army marched up from Jian and marched in and took Yongxin, with the communists withdrawing from Yongxin and the densely populated agricultural basin that surrounded it. Uh, this maneuver in and of itself helped to reduce the number of Guomindang troops that were in the field fighting the communists, because one regiment of the Guomindang army was then tasked with garris garrisoning Yongxin, uh, effectively putting them out of any immediate action against the communist armed forces. The rest of the Guomindang forces were then divided in two, with the idea that they would come at the core base area in the mountains from two sides. 
Uh, one force would advance southwest directly up into the mountains in a frontal assault against the communists' mountain redoubt. The other Guomindong force worked its way around the mountain so as to attempt to ascend the mountain from the south. The Red Army countered the direct attack on the mountain by occupying, de occupying defensive positions along the route into the base area, uh, parts of which were narrow trails where only three people could walk abreast. Meanwhile, two regiments of the 4th Red Army quickly moved against the flanking force, fighting a series of sharp engagements which defeated it and sent the remnants running back to Yongxin. In these engagements, the strongest part of the 4th Red Army was brought to bear against what was only about a third of the force that had been sent against the base area. This was an early application of Zhu and Mao's principle of using mobility and knowledge of the terrain to facilitate bringing superior numbers against the Guomindong in any given battle, even if overall in the whole theater of operations, the Guomindong enjoyed numerical superiority. Then, as this flanking force retreated to Yongxin, the Guomindong regiment garrisoning Yongxin sallied out to try to defend their retreating comrades and was badly beaten before it could retreat back into the city. This situation left the Guomindong forces that had advanced directly from Yongxin up into the mountains of Ningong County cut off from its rear. Rather than get hammered from each side, these guys cut off their attack and joined the rest of their army in retreating back to Jian. The communists then reoccupied Yongxin in the wake of the retreating Guomindong forces. And with the enemy fleeing in disarray, the communists got some nice upgrades in military equipment when they captured the arms left behind by the Guomindong. This included artillery in the form of seven trench mortars and two mounting guns. As Mao would later note in his 1936 work, Problems of Strategy in China's Revolutionary War, quote, in establishing our own war industry, we must not allow ourselves to become dependent on it. Our basic policy is to rely on the war industries of the imperialist countries and of our domestic enemy. We have a claim on the output of the arsenals of London as well as of Hanyang. And what is more, it is delivered to us by the enemy's transport corps. End quote. So here we see the beginning of what will remain the main communist strategy for supplying itself with arms, to take them from the enemy. As the great Chinese general Sunzi uh, wrote in the 6th century BC, the wise general sees to it that his troops feed on the enemy. The Guomindong army wasn't done, however. Back in Jian, it regrouped, brought in reinforcements, and then marched back up the valley and reoccupied Yongxin. This time, the force from Jian was much more wary than during the previous offensive. At first, the Guomindong troops remained hunkered down in Yongxin, stockpiling supplies and seemingly content to sit there and occupy the city. In response, the communists staged harassing guerrilla attacks on the city and on the army's supply lines. Unable to ignore these attacks, the Guomindong sent two regiments south out of Yongxin to set up a base 
just to the north of the mountain passes leading into Ningong County. Uh, this was a large and well-armed force, and the Guomindong remained cautious, leaving these two regiments in a relatively compact formation, which was hard for the communists to break up and assault. Now, three of the Red Army's four regiments had remained around the Ningong area in readiness to respond to advances by the forces surrounding them. But Mao had taken his 31st Regiment out into the countryside in the western part of Yongxing County, where his regiment of Autumn Harvest Uprising veterans were engaged in political work among the peasants and in guerrilla activity. Now, one of the things about Mao was that it was very important to him to keep up with the news. Of course, on one level, in his capacity as a high-level political leader, he needed to keep up with events. But just on a personal level, he was a voracious reader and a news junkie. So in the midst of this standoff with the Guomindong forces surrounding the core region of the base area, and in the midst of Mao being deep in the countryside doing the combination of guerrilla warfare and political mobilization work that his 31st Regiment specialized in doing, Mao sent a battalion into Hunan to raid a town, with the main purpose of the raid being to get newspapers so that Mao could get back up to date on what was going on in the world. Well, as it turned out, this town in Hunan was really well defended, and what was supposed to be a quick and easy raid to get some newspapers turned into a potentially massive military disaster. In order to save the battalion, it was necessary for Judah's 28th Regiment to descend from the Jingongshan. Hearing about these movements on the part of the Red Army, the Guomindong commander in Yongxin decided to take advantage of Judah's departure to order his troops, the Guomindong troops, to advance up the mountain and take the core of the base area, while keeping Yongxin strongly garrisoned with a bit less than half his force. Uh, the Guomindong troops were, uh, from Jiangsha were made up of five regiments. There were two garrisoning Yongxin, two trying to force their way up into the Jingong Massif, and another regiment garrisoned in a large market town about 10 miles west of the Yongxin county seat. And this was where the speed with which the Red Army operated turned things to its advantage. As the cumbersome Guomindong forces began attempting to move up the mountain, their advance was slowed by the remaining communist troops who were able to guard the mountain passes. Meanwhile, Mao and Zhu's regiments advanced on a forced march east from the Hunan border toward the developing battle. As the communist forces approached the town 10 miles west of Yongxin, which had a Guomindong regiment in it, the Guomindong forces got word of communist activity nearby. Naturally assuming that it was only a small guerrilla band, because the communist main force was known to have just recently been much too far away to have reached them, the Guomindong regiment sallied forth carelessly, thinking that it was in for an easy victory. Instead, it ran right into the oncoming might of the communists' two strongest regiments and was destroyed. Taking advantage of this victory, and not wanting to lose the element of surprise, the communists moved immediately on to the Yongxin county seat. When they got there, the shock of their sudden appearance sent the Guomindong garrison force there fleeing back to Jian, and the communists reoccupied the city. Now, 
having suddenly lost their rear, the Guomindong troops attacking the Jinggangshan broke off their attack and retreated, bypassing Yongxin entirely, uh, where communist troops defended the city behind strong walls, and going directly back to Jian. This victory brought the communists a few weeks' reprieve. But already again in June, the Guomindong launched another assault on the base. This time, the remnants of the defeated Guomindong force in Jian were joined by a fresh army division. Uh, because both the commander of this new division and the commander of the remaining forces that had already been defeated once were named Yang, uh, and because Yang means sheep in addition to being a surname, the communists started referring to these two guys as the two sheep. But in addition to the forces under the two Yangs coming up from Jian, now there was also three Guomindong regiments which approached from the western Hunan-facing side of the base area. Now, one of the real weaknesses of the Guomindong regime was the way in which administrative divisions between provinces tended to express themselves in a lack of coordination between the different provincial governments in doing things like fighting the communists. Uh, this was a carryover from imperial China, when the centralization of administration in provincial capitals meant that state authority could be uh, quite weak in the border regions between provinces, as if the strength of the state wasn't quite strong enough to radiate outward all the way to the boundary which it was supposed to reach. Then, uh, in the warlord years, these administrative divisions between provinces were expressed in warlords considering entire provinces to be their personal fiefs, uh, which meant that they viewed neighboring provinces as warlord rivals rather than as neighboring provincial governments to cooperate with. Um, then, with the appointment of military strongmen as governors in the new state structure established by the Guomindong, this warlord practice was carried over somewhat into the internal administration of the new government. So it was a little unusual that these Hunanese forces were mobilized against the communists in coordination with the Jiangsha forces, which marched up from Jian. Uh, but this rivalry between provincial strongmen who served as governors within the Guomindong regime also meant that the coordination would be quite limited. The Hunanese forces were quite a bit stronger than the Jiangsha forces, even if numerically inferior in this case. Uh, because of this, Mao formulated the policy that the communists should, quote, be on the defensive against Hunan, where the enemy rule is stronger, and take the offensive against Jiangsha, where his rule is weaker, end quote. Um, Stephen Averill gives a nice, concise rendering of how this June 1928 suppression campaign was defeated by the communists. Red Army leaders chose to make only a brief diversionary attack to slow the Hunanese advance before directing their primary effort against the Jiangsha garrison troops. After once again leaving the weak 32nd Regiment to garrison the Jingangshan Massif and sending Mao and a single battalion of the 31st Regiment to western Yongxin to join local guerrillas in creating a very visible threat on the enemy's flank, the bulk of the Red Army moved into strong positions guarding the two narrow passes that cut through the wooded and deeply ravined mountains dividing Ninggong and Yongxin. With Mao's noisy flank demonstration to remind them of the disaster that had struck from this quarter during the previous campaign, 
the generals Yang kept two entire regiments back to defend the Yongxing County seat and tried to force the passes with the remaining three. Though this force, as usual, was much larger than the Red Army, the terrain favored the defenders by funneling the warlord soldiers into narrow defiles where they could not utilize their superior numbers. In a fierce struggle, the Red Army, aided by their defensive advantages and by a timely guerrilla raid that spread panic in the enemy's rear, destroyed one enemy regiment and routed two others, killed or wounded several hundred enemy soldiers, and captured almost as many men and weapons. Then they retook the Yongxing County seat after the remnants of the enemy force fled to Jian. Hearing this news, the Hunanese army also retreated. All right, that passage was from Stephen Averill's uh, Revolution in the Highlands. Uh, again, uh, for those listeners who want to get deeper into this whole Jingongshan experience, that is the book to read. All right, in the wake of this victory, the base area expanded to the greatest extent that it would reach, covering the entirety of Ningong, Yongxin, and Lianhua counties and portions of neighboring counties. It occupied an area over 7,200 square kilometers and had a population of over 500,000 people. This period is known as the high tide of the Jingongshan base area. And next episode, we'll look at some of what happened during this high tide. Thanks for listening, and especially thanks to all the listeners who have been supporting the show. See you next time.